right. <clears throat> well, good evening, everyone. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get to it. Dear Lord, thank you so much that we can study your word. It's so rich. Uh, the more we look at it, Lord, the more we are amazed uh, at your provisions that you've made for us. The greatest is our salvation. Thank you so much for that, Lord. So as we study tonight, I pray that it <clears throat> wouldn't be me, Lord, that it would be you speaking and your word and the things that you want us to know tonight. We'd be able to take something home, bring it into our lives, dear Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so good evening. Uh, Honey in the Bible, this is our third installment. Uh, but before uh, we look at that, I've, I think you guys have seen there's a pattern here. I like to start off uh, with a, a piece of art and to provoke our thoughts and also to get us to think about our great salvation. Uh, this is a Spanish painter. And uh, Spain is traditionally a Catholic country, and many of these paintings that were done during this period of time uh, <clears throat> often have golden halos around everyone's head, and um, can be a little off-putting uh, at times. I happen to like this, this particular uh, painting. Here's a little baby Jesus, and he actually looks like a baby. Oftentimes... Well, I mean, you laugh at that, but if you look at a lot of these adorations of the shepherds, adoration of the magi, or even the Madonna and the baby, the baby looks like an adult in her, her lap. So this looks like a real baby because Jesus was a real baby. Now, this is almost impossible for us to wrap our heads around how the God of creation could become a baby. It, it's, it, I can't get my head. Maybe you all can figure it out, but he starts off as a baby, a chubby little baby. Why is he a chubby baby? Because that's a healthy baby. Back in that uh, culture, uh, a chubby baby is a healthy baby. Uh, my son married a girl from um, Vietnam. They like fat babies. They want to make sure those babies are plump because otherwise, in that culture, third world cultures, skinny babies can die. So fat babies are good babies. Okay, and I, I, love the, I love this particular thing where the, the shepherd here, he's kneeling, he's in bare feet, uh, and he's, he's, he has been told, and we're going to look at this uh, in Luke, hey, something amazing has happened, come and see. And you can see Joseph in the background, the, another shepherd with the lamb. Uh, this is uh, some kind of stable scene. Uh, you see the cow, and in, in the little shadow, there's a donkey over there, some uh, chickens, uh, a lady uh, uh, looking with some, a basket of eggs, just looking at what is going on. Okay, and I wonder what I got to do here. Oh, yeah, I got to do this. Is that right? Okay, yeah, yeah. My, my, I have a countdown clock. When that goes red, I go dead. Okay, so, <laughs> okay. so let's look at Luke. Chapter 2, open our Bibles there, and we'll read the story and see what we can make of it. All right. This is the Christmas story, but it's an any, kind, any day story. Um, Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to start right, right at the very first verse. All right. 
now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, and each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, which uh, notice their firstborn son. Um, there are some branches of Christianity who say that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Well, that's certainly not true. Uh, Jesus had uh, brothers and uh, sisters, so just, you know, Luke is so good at recording the details. He didn't just like, gloss over it, okay? And they wrapped him in clothes, and they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. Yes, I think I would be terribly frightened if I was out in the middle of you know, the night, starry sky, and all of a sudden we got angels coming. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. You remember, Abraham was promised that through your seed, all nations will be blessed. And certainly through Christ, that seed, all nations are blessed. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I mean, there are three important words there. Savior, uh, Christ is not just an example for us to follow. He is our Savior. That word Savior is the, it has the same association with the word from the Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? It's the same thing. Christ can save you if you place your faith in him. Who is Christ? In other words, Messiah, who um, also means the anointed one, a threefold uh, function of a prophet, priest, and king. Christ fulfills all of those. Christ the Lord, not just Christ the good man. I just stop here. Uh, there's a recent survey done that something like 30% of all evangelicals, especially young evangelicals, do not believe in the divinity of Christ. This is, this is nuts. I don't know what they're reading. I mean, if you, how can you say you're saved if you're just believing in a man who could... What, what can another man do? It ha he has to be divine. Only, only God can uh, live a perfect, sinless life and be uh, large enough, grand enough uh, to save uh, the entire world who would believe in him. And then verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. <clears throat> this is another one of these interesting things here that these shepherds didn't just come upon Oh, look, there's a baby here. This was a sign. This is another one of these things that authenticate uh, the angel's message and, and who Christ was. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem. 
and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So this was a divine message, again, of what had transpired. So they came in a hurry. <laughs> I had never actually seen that. So they came in a hurry. Oh, they didn't dawdle. And found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And these promises, right? And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is another one of those verses you could just never plumb the depth of what did Mary really understand. Did she understand the gravity of what was before her? Um, I don't know. You can meditate on that for a while. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as they had been told to them. And so my challenge to you tonight, is Christ your Savior? Are you trusting him for your salvation? He's not just a good man. Christmas is a weird time. We celebrate this, and you'll see all these things coming up on TV channels and specials and stuff like that about the love that Christmas engenders in your heart. It's not really about that. It's about the fact that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner, and we needed uh, a savior. And this little baby becomes and is that savior. Do you know him? Do you realize what he did for you and for me on the cross? He died in your place. If you don't know that, you can know it tonight uh, by accepting what he did for you. Okay, uh, now we'll click out of this and we'll get on to Honey in the Bible, week number three. We'll get this one up here. Okay, it's a four-part series, but it's taking more than four times to, to get this all uh, through. Uh, so honey, the, the big picture about honey, honey is used figuratively and literal, literally, and sometimes a little bit of both. Uh, and I guess you could almost divide it into three categories. Uh, there's used 60 times in the, New Test in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, Predominantly, about a third of those verses are, are talking in connect connection with the land of milk and honey. And we've spent uh, at least the first um, installment of this trying to demonstrate that the honey that it was referencing was not date honey. Yes, there was date honey from smashed dates uh, in that land, and there still is today, but it has, does not have nearly the significance that Honey from beehives has. Uh, and we kind of, you know, um, uh, demonstrated and, uh, uh, that, that that was true, that it was honeybee honey. And we'll look at that a little bit uh, more. Uh, the second area in the Old Testament is this um, metaphor where honey, uh, uh, that the word of God is even sweeter than, excuse me, sweeter than honey. Well, obviously, you can't take, physically taste the word of God, so it's a figure of speech and everything that's contained within the idea of sweetness. And um, uh, the third thing is just its literal uh, use where uh, Jonathan tasted some honey uh, and it tasted great. And there were some other, Samson uh, uh, found honey in a, a dead lion, 
Uh, and that was real honey, and it tasted, and it tasted great. So those are the three ways of looking at it in the Old Testament. New Testament, it's primarily used as um, uh, uh, literal. John the Baptist, it's typically John, it's four times, John the Baptist lived on wild honey and locust. And we're going to actually look at that as well. Okay, so we're here week three. It's a superfood, temple uses, and prohibitions. And I may, some of you have already seen a little bit of what I'm going to cover, but I'm going to cover it again because some of you haven't seen it and it's important. And then I think the most interesting thing uh, is the uh, medical uses in ancient cultures and today. Uh, and, you know, these, the big themes are God's promises, God's provisions, and God's protection. And in terms of the land of milk and honey, God promised them that land. They do take possession of it. Like Mike was saying, in the millennial kingdom, there's a large swath of land that they will take, not just this little amount that they seem to have now. But they, God did bring them out of Egypt into the land. Uh, they took possession of it. And the, the fact that there was going to be honey there was going to would ensure uh, sufficient food provisions for them, both on what the honey can provide and the fact that the bees are fantastic pollinators and pollinate uh, forage crops for animals to graze on. So there's there's the milk part of it, and God's protection. We're going to look at the protective qualities of honey. Remember, medicine at this time was much less sophisticated than it is today. Um, the Egyptians had about 900 different pharmaceutical concoctions using honey. And this is a really interesting part that we'll get into. But first, we'll look at superfood. And here's a verse right here, uh, Proverbs 24. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. So this is, you know, Solomon saying this. And uh, the next, the next uh, verse, we can look at Deuteronomy. And this is also uh, an interesting verse. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines. I have a little asterisk here. Uh, they require uh, honeybees either to pollinate or to improve the yield, we looked at last Sunday how the fact that the honeybee, by uh, going after the grapevines, although they don't need pollinating, ensures that the grape clusters are wholesome and there are very few, I'm going to call it duds, in there. So honeybees uh, do that. Pomegranates, a land of olive oil, olive trees do need to be pollinated. They're not self-pollinating. And honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. So we also talked last week about the, besides honey being something you can eat, it comes from uh, beehives that provide wax, and there was no other source of wax in the ancient times other than uh, beeswax. And if you're going to dig copper or iron and you want to... Um, cast intricate things, you need wax for the lost wax process. So when God said, hey, I'm sending you into a land, you're going to be a prosper 
prosperous civilization and society. I'm going to give you the things that you need. And one of the things you need uh, is the ability to uh, cast items, uh, not only for the tabernacle, which they clearly did, but subsequent temples, uh, Solomon's temple, they would have used the wax from uh, bees and beehives. So God had provided those things. Uh, Now this one here, uh, this is another little example of a literal use of the word honey as a superfood. Uh, and we'll just kind of read through this. But the men of Israel were hard-pressed that day because Saul had put the people under a curse, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people ate any food. And all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was uh, honey on the ground. Now this is honey be honey. Uh, And when the people entered the forest, the honey was dripping. But no man put his hand to his mouth to taste it, because the people feared the oath of Saul. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. So he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. And when he put his hand to his mouth, his energy was restored. So the honey had a restorative restorative effect. Um, Towards uh, what I want to do is uh, on the fourth installment of this, a kind of a a spoiler alert. I want to bring in uh, two types of honey. One, because I'm a beekeeper. If you don't know that I'm a beekeeper, uh, I want to bring in uh, a sample of my honey. I'll try to set it up downstairs with a way for people to sample it. And also, uh, in America, the best honey by all estimation is a honey that comes from the sourwood tree. If there's any people from the south here, you'll know what sourwood trees are. I guess they're a nuisance, but they produce fantastically, fantastic tasting honey. And when you uh, do taste uh, raw, natural honey, uh, it's a jolt if you've never tasted it before. If, if you've never tasted raw, natural honey, you've only tasted the stuff in stores with little squeeze bears, it's nothing like that at all, okay? So you're going to find out uh, probably next week or whenever I finish up the fourth uh, 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 lesson here. But one of the people told him, your father strictly uh, put the people under an oath saying, curse is the man who eats the food today. And the people were exhausted. Um, And Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land with this foolish curse. See how my energy is restored because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better would it have been if only the people had eaten freely today from the spoil of their enemies, which they had found, and now the slaughter of the Philistines. And I think I just chopped off a a verse. Oh, no, for now the slaughter of the Philistines has not been great. All right, so we have an example here of food really reviving a person. Okay, here's a couple other ones here. When David came, um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not bad at pronouncing these things. So he came to this place, show me the son of Nahash from Rab, Rabbah of the Ammonites and Machir, son of Emil from Lodibar and Brazili of the Gilites, Gilidites, Gilidites, Gildite. Uh, oh gosh, I'm just not good at this. I, I apologize. Uh, and from uh, Roglam, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. So all these people came out, 
And they also brought wheat and barley and flour and roasted grain and beans and lentil and honey and curds and sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in this wilderness. And I guess the point I want to make here is all these things that they bring out are things that will keep. Uh, They they won't uh, quickly uh, rot. You say, well, what about curds? Well, these curds are actually a strange form of dried cheese. It looks like a cheese curd, but they actually dry it, and uh, they can reconstitute it, but it keeps. It doesn't need refrigeration. Uh, And uh, we know that uh, if you can keep uh, uh, the the, uh, cheese from cows uh, at least covered in, guess what, wax, you can also maintain. So wax is so important for a number of things. And so they brought, them, they brought things out that would keep uh, dried beans and lentils and roasted grain. Okay, so again, it's a superfood and it's something that they could live on. And this is an interesting, this next verse here. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And last week we talked about domestic, uh, bees are the only domesticated uh, insect that we have. There's really no other domesticated insects that I know of. Um, but the bees, especially in, in this period, can live in the wild, but you have to stumble across them. It does make sense, though, that John wasn't domesticating bees because he's just out there in the desert. Okay, So it would make sense that he would have to just come across uh, honey. Uh, if he did, he, he could save it because it doesn't spoil honey will not spoil if it's been capped by the bees. So I say here, the bumper sticker here is, uh, bee honey is more than just a sweet treat. It has been an important part of the diets of ancients. So when God said, I'm going to give you a land of milk and honey, I'm going to give you a land that has enough food to sustain this large group of people. That's the point I'm, I'm trying to make here. Sustain you, and you're also going to find out that it will also protect you um, medically because of its uh, medicinal properties. And we're going to look at that. Now this next, um, I do apologize, Uh, I do not have the axis, the uh, y-axis here, but uh, remember that this is hundreds of research papers. So if you look at uh, uh, peer-reviewed research papers, and I like to go into and look at these, There was almost no research being done academically on honey up until around 2000. And then, as you can see, it it just began to just exponentially go up. Now, I don't know why this is trailing off in 2023. Uh, It could be that a a lot of uh, fundamental research has been done. Um, I'm not sure why it tailed off, but it is interesting that there's just an explosion of academic research on honey. And we're going to look at a few of these, um, these papers that will um, uh, kind of make the argument. So this one here is in the Journal of Biological Sciences, 2018. Uh, and this is the topic, or uh, the uh, title, Honey, a Single Food Stuff Comprises Many Drugs, Here's the authors. They're all professors at various universities. And what I try to do is read, read the paper and then synthesize down a little bit just to give you the, uh, the essence of what this particular paper, paper was about. Honey is a natural food item produced by honeybees. Ancient civilizations consider, considered honey as a God-gifted, prestigious product. Chemically, honey is a complex blend... 
complex blend of many organic and inorganic compounds, such as sugars, proteins, organic acid, pigments, minerals, and many other elements. At this instant, the modern research has proven the medicinal importance of honey. It has a broad-spectrum antibiotic, antiviral, and antifungal activities. Honey prevents and kills microbes through different mechanisms, such as elevated pH and enzyme activities. So my, my little verse below here, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. How could John just stay out in the desert and not get sick? Things like that. Well, he was eating honey. That was keeping him healthy. All right? And God provided uh, honey for John the Baptist. He provided honey for the Israelites as well. Okay. Uh, this is another one. This is a, a journal out of, uh, uh, I think it's nu- Nutritional uh, Metabolism. It's out of, uh, uh, out of London. Uh, and again, this is 2012. Um, and so NH, that's called natural honey. That's what that stands for. They use that as an abbreviation. Is widely accepted as food and medicine by all generations, traditions, civilization, both ancient and modern. Food is eaten for nourishment, metabolic activities, growth, and healthy living. Regular consumption of natural honey gives all these benefits. This is interesting. That's kind of bold, bolded this. In fact, honey is a complete meal. It contains major components of a meal, micronutrients that will enhance the digestion and absorption of these major dietary components, as well as those required for metabolism and body functions. So again, my verse from John the Baptist. I, I put this up here for this skeptic who says, how could John the Baptist live on just locust and honey? Well, there you go, right here. These, these people don't, this isn't coming out of a Christian journal or trying to just tailor things. And so uh, they have no ax to grind. Uh, whether they're neutral or not, I don't know. I'm taking their word for it. Honey is a complete meal. Great. And so John, John the Baptist was able to live on it. And it was something, remember, we talked about in a culture without refrigeration, you had to come up with foods that would not spoil. So you had you know, uh, beans that could be dried, other things like that, but honey could be harvested. Uh, and we looked at the Egyptians. They knew that the, the only enemy of honey is uh, it will absorb moisture. And it, that will, will actually going to come across this later on, is that one of, for wound care, because honey is hydroscopic, and I'm not a doctor, but wounds can get juicy, and one of the things you want to do with wounds is draw that fluid out. Whatever that fluid is, you want to draw that out of the, uh, of the wound, and honey will do that. But when honey takes on water, it can start to spoil. So what the Egyptians knew is you put honey in a pot, and you seal the pot with beeswax, so it's hermetically sealed. And as long as you do that, that honey will last indefinitely. It will not go bad. So if you have a society that doesn't have refrigeration, how, uh, you know, this would be one of the mechanisms where God said, okay, I'm going to make sure you have a stable food source, whether it's during harvest time or during the lean times. Like I think in New England, the time of starvation uh, in early New, uh, New England days were this February or March time frame when people had kind of exhausted all of their food. And spring had not started. There was no planting yet. So that was a time often of death and starvation because they, the, the, their food wasn't lasting. So the idea that you could put up food 
that would last, including honey, is an important feature. And that was in the land of promise, the land of milk and honey. Uh, so this one here is the this, uh, Scientific World Journal, 2008. Natural honey and cardiovascular risk factors effects on blood glucose, cholesterol, triglycerides, and um, I'm not sure what CRP is. I apologize for that. Body weight compared with sucrose. And so this is the takeaway from this article. Um, It has been found that honey ameliorates cardiovascular risk factors in healthy individuals and in patients with elevated risk factors. In other words, it kind of tamps them down and reduces those. It is our conclusion that the consumption of natural honey reduces cardiovascular risk factors, particularly in subjects with elevated risk factors, and it does not, this is interesting, does not increase body weight in overweight or obese subjects. So you have a society, and you want that society to um, flourish and not die unnecessarily, well, God provides, I'm, you know, going back to the land of milk and honey, guess what? There's going to be honey here. You can eat it. It'll be good for your health, uh, and it will be good for your heart. These are all interesting parts of what honey can do and how God provided that. Also, I would su- submit for John the Baptist, this is another way that uh, God could keep him healthy uh, and, you know, through the, through the uh, uh, consumption of honey. Uh, this is, an, this is an interesting one. This is the uh, Journal of Physiological Behavior. Uh, it's a, this is the effects of long-term honey, sucrose, or sugar-free diets on memory and anxiety in rats. Um, they always start with rats to start with, or, or mice and rats. Okay, And uh, this study was undertaken to determine whether replacing sucrose, that's basic sugar, in the diet long-term with honey that has a high antioxidant content could decrease deterioration in the brain function during aging. Honey-fed, honey-fed, I need some honey. Honey-fed rats showed significantly less anxiety at all stages of aging compared to those just fed basic sugar. Honey-fed animals also displayed better spatial memory Throughout, and it was a 12-month period. I guess rats don't live that long, okay? So through a, a, what would be considered a, a, I guess, a reasonable lifespan for a rat, these types of rats, I don't know how long these rats live, but it's not like 100 years like, like people. Honey-fed animals also display better spatial memory throughout the 12-month period. In conclusion, it appears that the consumption of honey may reduce anxiety and improve spatial memory in middle ages. So I'm thinking, and here we have John the Baptist again, he's eating honey. We have the people in the promised land, they're eating honey. Um, It's something that calms you down. That's a good thing if you have a bunch of people. Don't get all anxious, right? Uh, And uh, also, it helps with your your memory. So again, another, another one of these great things that God provided for them by the, the fact that honey was going to be in their land. And we're going to uh, eventually look at this, but when the Israelites moved in to the land of promise, the booty was hu- beehives because those people who were living there were keeping bees. Okay, so they said, you guys get out or we're going to have killed you all. And guess what we got? We got all this stuff. And God promises them, you're going to get the stuff you didn't work for. Okay, now this is an interesting thing. So 
what about grasshoppers? And how could John the Baptist just live on, on um, locusts and wild honey? And uh, let me try to explain what you're looking at. Um, <laughs> okay, what, what, what you're not looking at is that the front of a cow is only fat and the back of the cow is only protein. It's not showing that. It's showing the proportion in beef, okay? 48% fat, uh, 52% protein. What it's telling you, this 285 kcalories proportion for... Um, it's, it, that's the size portion you would need for uh, 26 grams of protein, 18 grams of fat, and these things here. Grasshoppers are super full of protein, uh, a little bit of fat and some carbs. You need about half the amount of grasshoppers that you would need of beef to get the same nutrition. And you say, well, I don't want to eat any grasshoppers. Folks, people are already eating grasshoppers, okay? And I will prove this to you. This is a growing concern in Israel. They are farming this like crazy. They have found a way to farm locusts without getting out of control because we know that locusts can go bananas. So they have found a way to safely um, raise them and they're providing uh, what they call biblical protein and it is, it is a growing concern. This isn't just a one-off. Uh, eventually you're going to see this in America too. Uh, people raising locusts. Uh, I don't know what's in these jars. Uh, I, I don't think they're just, uh, you open them up and there's a bunch of locusts in there. I think it's ground up, it's a meal, and you can make something out of it. <laughs> okay, but the point is, is that what God said is true. John the Baptist could live on locusts and wild honey, and the people um, in the promised land were also able to make use of, of honey because God had provided that for him. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a repeat on this temple use and prohibitions because I covered this on sa um, sa Saturday. <laughs> yeah, I covered this on Sunday, and uh, we're just going to cover it again. Some of you may not have seen it, and I've added some additional information here. So, in Leviticus, it says, No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. Because we know leaven kind of symbolizes sin. It just gets through everything. <clears throat> Nor shall you offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. And we're going to discuss this in, in, in passing here. So everything changed in our understanding of what kind of honey was in the land of milk and honey by this discovery uh, at Tel Rehov. And I'm going to give you a, a Sunday. Someone asked, Well, where is that? I have a map for that. This, uh, in the upper corner here, it looks like this raised uh, land. That's a Tel. Tel are these raised up areas, and the people strategically lived on top of them. And so they found a, a, a large settlement here in 2008, and they found lots of beehives. And this was the first time they had ever found beehives in Israel. Even though um, you know, God said there was going to be a land of milk and honey, and even though there's lots of evidence from the writings of other cultures, the Hittites, the Canaanites, that they had bees, uh, 
They had never actually found any physical evidence until 2008, and that just revolutionized everything we understand about the land of milk and honey. So where is Tel Rehof? You see that little um, circle there? It's in this little area between Manasseh and Issachar, up right between Jezreel and uh, Beth Shan. And so it's kind of tucked up in that area there. Uh, in general, it's in the northern area of, of Israel. So when the kingdom gets divided in half, Judah's in the south, and the ten other tribes are up north. So it's up in that area, and that area tended to have more problems with idolatry than the south did. Okay, and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to show this. Okay, so what we're just, I'm just going to read this here. Excavations led by Professor Mazar at Tel Rehov from 1997 to 2008 revealed continuous occupation levels in the late Bronze Age and Iron Age, 12th and 11th centuries, as well as buildings dating to the 10th and 9th centuries, the period of the United Monarchy, David, Solomon, and subsequent division of the kingdom. In 732 BC, the city was violently destroyed by the Assyrians, and thereafter it was abandoned. And that is when the Assyrians carried away the northern tribes. The southern tribes were eventually carried away by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, but the northern tribes were carried away by the Assyrians. And the Bible records that. So I'm just going to try to... I just pulled this out of my Bible here. Uh, so where is uh, this time frame they're talking about? So Exodus is right before 1400 BC. The 14th century is from uh, 1300 to 1400. The 12th century is, uh, excuse me, the 13th century is 13 to 12, so on and so forth. So initially, uh, Tel Rehov is settled around the time of David and Solomon. And the apiaries, apiaries and the other things they, that, uh, they find there are really right after Solomon. And it's in this area from 900 to 800. Uh, it's interesting, and I didn't bring this up. Uh, they have found an inscription in Tel Rehov with the name um, uh, Elijah. And Elijah is known to live near here. And there may be some connection here. Now, point of uh, caution, people love to find stuff. Oh, look, Elijah lived there. We're not sure but it's, it's promising, these uh, continued discoveries here. But the, the northern kingdom had all types of idolatrous practices that God was condemning. And we're going to look at this. I mean, I, I showed you guys on Sunday, you guys and gals on Sunday, this is an altar that was found in Tel Rehov uh, around, the, I think, the 9th century. And it says, in addition to complete, a complete altar, in conjunction with the beehives as shown here, this is the, the altar. We, also, we found an almost complete altar with triangular windows cut into its facade in association with an open cult location. So they, it's area E. So when they're excavating areas, they have area A, B, C, D, E. That's how they kind of identify the area that they're excavating. So in a certain area, they, they, they identified an area that seemed to have a lot of cult stuff going on and an area E at the eastern end of the lower city. Uh, the altar had been found smashed to pieces, probably as a deliberate action of derision during the destruction of the stratum. That's the, the layer. The stratum is the particular archaeological layer. So something came in and smashed this all at the end of the 9th century. So, and this altar, as I explained on Sunday, 
There's two little figurines there. It's a little hard to see, but they are Canaanite deities that are there. And uh, here's a picture I hadn't shown you before. This is another little one they found here. And there's, I meant to look this up, but there is a verse in the Old Testament, and I'm going by memory, it says, and what, what I'm holding in my hand I don't even understand is a lie. And so these little handheld deities would be just this, but this is not God. This is a lie. And these were deities that the people would keep. And this is one that was just... This one here uh, was actually just found by a boy who was walking around up there. He found it on the top of the ground, just sitting there, right? So there's all kinds of these little cultic things here, uh, which is not what God wanted. Um, and we'll look at this. This is another little um, shrine. And inside the shrine, they probably put these little fertility goddesses uh, uh, to help them with either their crops or procreation and things like that. And then I'll just read this, this next uh, little blurb here. Uh, what does the presence of such objects tell us about the identity of the inhabitants of the Iron Age at Tel Rehob and their religion? The shrine as well as the clay altars indicate strong Canaanite traditions among the local population in the 10th and 9th centuries BCE or BC, no doubt at the time of the Israelite monarchy that the worship of Yahweh was slowly adopted by this local population. Again, these are, these are just secularists writing this, but I think there's, some, there's a measure of truth here because they're, they're, they're commenting on what they're finding there archaeologically. That, yes, these are, these are Jews, these are Israelites that are occupying this thing, and they're supposed to be worshiping Yahweh. But you can read time and time again in the Bible where they pick up these idols and they allow these things to creep in their life. And I made the point on Sunday, I'll make it again. We have to look inward at our life we say we're Christians. Are we letting things creep into our lives that don't belong there? Take inventory. I have to and you have to. Take stock. Uh, I, I use the example. If Christ knocked on your door tonight and said, hey, can I come in and sit on your couch and see what's going on? Would you say, well, how about if I clean the place up for a little bit? <laughs> or maybe we'll just change the TV channel because I don't think you want to watch this show, right? Just be careful. Be careful what you're doing because you could be like these Israelites in Tel Rehov, that allowed all these other things to creep in. The struggle between the emerging Israelite religion and the worship of the Canaanite deities such as Baal and Asherah is a prominent theme in biblical narrative, and the rich cultic objects found at Tel Rehov might give us a material peek behind the scenes at this dramatic time in ancient history. So what I wanted to do is uh, we have enough time uh, to read these little verses here in Deuteronomy. Okay, let's read... And now that we've talked about this, I think if we read Deuteronomy chapter 6 and think about all the stuff I've been talking about, it may, they may actually, uh, I don't want to say come alive, but may have a, a, a slightly deeper meaning. It certainly did for me. Okay. Okay, this is Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 15. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the judgment which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going to possess, over to possess it. So Moses is telling them, hey, you're going to go to this promised land, and God wants me to give you these instructions so that you and your sons and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I'm comm I command you all the days of your life, and that the 
that your days be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. As compared to all the polytheistic cultures that they were going to go into. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall, this is the Shema, I think. And you shall talk to them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them on the, as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontals of your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house. And we usually stop here. But these next few verses are so instructive. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers. This is the promise. Your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, we looked at each and every one of the patriarchs. God reappeared to them and said, I'm going to give you this wonderful land. Okay. In fact, they sojourned in that land. And he said, look around. Look north, south, east, and west. This is going to be your, your land. Um, so uh, let's see. Let me get that back. Uh, your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself. It's a warning to them, and it's a warning to us that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods or any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. And we want to look at also 7, 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Pezites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. <clears throat> and when your Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them, which of course they don't do. Right, And you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters or to, uh, to their sons, and you shall not take their daughters for your sons. And this is the, the warning, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And what happened with Tel Rehov is in the 1732, or 17, 732, God's anger was kindled, and they were destroyed. The Assyrians wiped them out and brought them, and we never found that, the, the, we call them the Ten Lost Tribes. They went in there. Who knows what happened to them, right? The Babylonians that, uh, took the, uh, Judah, and they did return, and they rebuilt the wall with Ezra, Nehemiah, and all that. But God is warning them, and you can see from Tel Rehov, Yes, they possessed that. They, they had all the things they had never worked for. They got the houses, the cisterns, uh, all the things that they didn't have to plant, the Canaanites before them. 
but they did not completely obliterate them. And somehow they allowed that religion's practice to, to uh, pollute their life, and it just descended into worse and, and worse things. Uh, and I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end here. Uh, this is a really interesting... Oh, let's see. I'm not going to go into this one because I only have two minutes left. I can't do this... Um, Justice. Apiculture, that is uh, beekeeping. Uh, apiaries, apiaries are places where you have all your beehives, and apiculture is the uh, science of keeping beehives in the Hittite cuneiform text. And this Hittites and Canaanites, they're very, very similar. And we'll look at um, ancient writings that talk about what was going on in these lands right before Israel went in and some of the uh, problems there and how their view of of deity and how honey uh, played in in a very corrupt way in their um, religious life as pagan life. Um, We'll look at that and contrast and compare that to the way we live our life according to the, the scriptures. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end just two minutes early. I'm, I'm sorry, because I, I, I won't be able to, get, uh, to do justice on this. So we're, we're done here. That's my little thing here. Just, okay, all right. Uh, thank you for your patience tonight. Okay, dear Lord, thank you so much uh, that you love us and you put up with us. Help us to live holy lives, Lord. Take inventory. Help me to take inventory of my life that I could be pleasing to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.